This is the art of failure. You can't succeed at a work of art unless you dance with failure. A series telling the human stories behind art. There was one day where I thought, I'm tired of being a failure. How do I use my failure to be my strength? In this episode, artists, a poet, a novelist and a dancer reflect on the experiences of art and failure. I think I have got to a place where failure feels punk because everyone around me is trying to show you their five stars, show you their goldenness. And there's something that I'm not precious about being seen to not be great. To fail, to be viewed as flawed. of Lucian Freud's work. My name is Scotty, I'm an artist and an activist, and today I'm at Tate Britain. And I can immediately see on the back wall, I can just see a glimpse of someone I know very well, um, who I affectionately call Auntie Sue, who I think the art world used to affectionately call Fat Sue until she told people off, but better known as the artist Sue Tilly who's a model for Lucien, and is in a few of his paintings. This one's called Sleeping by the Lion Carpet from 1996. There's a, like a leather chair that I know was really awful to sit on and quite old, and the leather was falling away. So, and we can't see that un underneath Sue because we've got this mass of freckled flesh on top of it. When I got given a council bedsit, Sue was my next-door neighbour, and she is a big body, and she's like a big, brilliant body. For me, it's encouraging to be able to see that. What it's directly saying to me, or what it's directly showing to me, is this is a fat, working-class body that's taking ownership of the space. Unapologetically. In a way that I understand as being a fat, working-class body in this space now. But I think there's a failure of the art world of how they've translated all of the works that Lucian's made of Sue, where it's always about her fatness being pantomime, as if this is fatness as failure. And I feel she deserves more acclaim for this work, because above the work it says Lucian Freud, but actually this is a collaboration. This is Lucian Freud and Sue Tilly, because it's Sue's body. It's Sue's nonchalance. That makes this image. To fail. To acquiesce and admit defeat. I think it's, a, it's an unsung problem that we all face going to a gallery or a museum. You get tired almost the moment you walk in or after five minutes you think oh, this is too hard, I have to concentrate too hard, I have to think too hard. I'm tired, I want a cup of tea, I want to go look in the shop. My name is Tracy Chevalier, and I'm a novelist. You think, okay, there's a Picasso exhibition, and so everything that goes up on the wall is, it's really a big deal, and everything's going to be really meaningful, and you're going to have a meaningful travel experience through Picasso land. 
And um, I have tried to let myself off the hook a little bit by acknowledging that I feel that, knowing that it will probably come on, and thinking, you know, Tracy, just because somebody has chosen to put something up on a wall doesn't mean you have to like it. It's interesting because when you go into a bookshop and you look at all the books that are out on the tables and you look at the covers and you read the blurbs, no one is expecting you to pick up every single book and want to read it. You're choosy and you're expected to be. The same with music. You're not going to, when you're on the listening to the radio, you're not going to like every song. And yet somehow we're expected to go into a gallery and go, ooh, ah, oh yes, oh yes, that's something. But actually most of the paintings or, or whatever you're looking at won't necessarily speak to you. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think that it's much better to have one really good experience in front of one painting. So I think we all need to be kinder to ourselves and just look around. I often go into a room and I'll cruise around the room looking at everything really fast. And then I go back to the things that actually speak to me. And sometimes nothing does. I'll move on to the next room. And that, I think, makes it a little bit easier to really come away with a much more positive experience. The British politician and novelist Benjamin Disraeli said, You know who the critics are? The men who have failed in literature and art. So I have in copy for performances and shows and works given my best review and my worst review. And I think one of my favourite worst reviews was published in the stage when I just first started out, so about ten years ago now, and it said, mediocre. <laughs> Which I thought, I, actually, this tells you where I'm coming from, I had to ask someone what it said because I'd never seen the word spelt before. So I was going, mediocre. What does it mean? I, like, I had no idea what it meant. But I really love, like, it's like a really floral, educated, quite fancy way of saying, middle of the road. Not very good. All right. And I, I take that with uh, ownership because, you know, now the same and similar publications are saying different things because I've, I've learned on the job. There's some works that I guess critics have slammed or audiences have said, this is awful, this is a failure, that I thought, oh no, this is great. This is messy and uncomfortable. So do we come back to that conversation that I'm so used to having now that is failure determined by the cisgendered, white, heterosexual wealthy is it them who bring their taste to the table and say this is a failure and so then as people who consume culture we're supposed to say oh well they've they've said this is bad so it's going to be rubbish in it so perhaps the whole notion of failure is flawed perhaps failure is failed fail, to struggle at an artistic endeavour. I'm Michael Simmons-Roberts and I'm a poet. When I was just starting out as a poet and writing the poems that were going to go into my first book, 
I was a lodger for a while, living in Cardiff at the time, in a house with a painter. And I learned a tremendous amount from seeing him work. And I would go out and do my job. I was working at the BBC as a radio producer then. And I, I came back at the end of the day and he'd have painted over his painting again because the blue wasn't right. And he was so driven and so self-critical about it having to be perfect and not accepting anything less than that from himself. It was a tremendous example to me and one that I took with me. But one of the stories that guided him as a painter was the story of Solomon, the biblical story, the Old Testament story of Solomon building the temple and the exact perfect dimensions and materials that had to go into the making of this temple. And so, because he was obsessed with the perfect blue, this painter, I ended up writing this poem for him called Ultramarine. Looking for the perfect blue, water to swim in, not through, to fill his sea, his massive bowl of hand-thick bronze, which should hold more than light, its dozen compass-pointing bearer oxen, Braced in constant expectation, Solomon scoured every nation for a colour that was right. Now and then he would catch sight of utter blue as he bent down in some remote spice-scented town to wash a day's heat from his face. But when he moved the dish, no trace. If water needed autumn's slant, the market trader's day-long chant a smell of orange, sandalwood, elusive as the blue in blood, then he would reproduce it all. And this was wisdom. Some would call it waste, a bad example. Some will never build a temple. My name's Lubaina Himid, and I'm an artist. And every time I start a series of paintings, and I quite often know that it's going to be a series, I feel that the way to make it perfect would be if this was the perfect grey painting. There are so many colours in grey. So there are yellow greys, blue greys, red greys, green greys, etc. Everything, every pink greys. And if I could paint the paintings that I want to paint, I imagine this, but of course then it, it doesn't happen, but if I could do that, if I could paint the paintings that I want to paint in what I call the kind of way that, you know, the history of British painting often pans out, this kind of um, relationship with the understated, with the intellectual. I just think, I don't know, it's a goal worth pursuing. I know by now that I so much want people who look at the work to have an easy first step into my work, that that's why the colour comes in. At the moment I'm painting something that has a vast grey deck of a boat and a vast grey sky in a different grey. I was talking to someone and I said, this painting is nearly done, I really just have to do the details. And then I found myself writing, or I might change the colour of the sky and the deck. And I thought, yeah, that's it, you know, three Two-thirds of this painting are huge swathes of different grey, and I've admitted that before I send this painting off, I might change two-thirds of it. So that's what happens. I think the negotiation with failure and disappointment and having that on one shoulder 
absolutely constant sense that you're getting it wrong. But on the other shoulder, the driving obsessive compulsion to try and get it right and knowing, having some hint of a notion of an idea of what that might feel like. And somewhere between those two is the chemistry, if you like, that keeps someone at it. That idea of a painter looking for the perfect blue or in the perfect grey, what makes that beautiful and complicated is that you often glimpse it. The colour changes as it dries, especially if you're working in oils. So you have the perfect blue for half an hour and then it dries and it becomes less perfect and you've moved through the perfection that you've glimpsed and you have to scrape it off and start again and you remix it in a slightly different shade, a slightly different temperature, hoping that that will hold to the perfection that you saw for 15 minutes or half an hour and it never quite does and that's why you paint the next painting and the next one and the next one so there's something about the negotiation with failure but not failure as a random series of unfortunate collapses in your ability to make things you're still getting better and better you would hope to get a poem right or to get a painting right there's a line in an interview by the the poet Robert Graves where he says if you could write the perfect poem, the world would end. It's a bit dramatic. But I do think if you could write the perfect poem, your career would end. There'd be no point in writing the next one because you'd have done it. But no one quite knows what that poem would look or sound like. So trying to hunt it down, trying to get it as right as you possibly can, and trying to negotiate your way around continual failures on the road to it is part of what keeps us all alive and writing. The French poet Paul Valéry said, Art is never finished, only abandoned. My name is Akram Khan. I'm a choreographer and dancer. I'm going to retire from doing full-length contemporary solo. And I will still perform, but it will be on a much smaller scale. And, you know, it's, it's for many reasons I, I decided to retire. My body used to be quiet. It was very obedient. Now it just complains all the time. It's shouting at me in the morning. Slow down, slow down, get out of the bed the right way. Um, pick up that teacup, gently. I've always been fast with everything. Being tranquil or slowing down hasn't really been my strength. <laughs> but it's funny with age how you are forced against your ego to slow down. Our natural instincts when we're born is to, the first thing we, gesture we do is to grab, to clench the fist. We never learn to unclench it. So the clenching is the ego. The unclenching is letting go of the ego, which means letting go of that understanding that, you know, you're disappointed in your body because it can't do certain things and it can't operate in the way that you used to. It's failing my ego. It's not failing me. To fail, to experiment and embrace mistakes. You can't succeed at a work of art unless, unless you dance with failure, really. I mean, I've described it before as dancing with failure, taking failure home, you know, giving failure a cup of coffee and really ending up in bed with failure. You absolutely have to not be afraid to take the work to the kind of limit that feels 
that feels good in a sense because that's the only way that you can kind of dig yourself out of that and make something that succeeds for yourself, you know? You have to worry about trying, trying, trying to get nearer and nearer the questions that you're sort of asking of the work. Everybody knows that the more questions you ask, the more questions there are to ask, the more you shift something in the work, the more you then have to shift something else. It's like a Rubik's Cube, you know? But you can't succeed at a Rubik's Cube unless you're willing to just, I don't know, relax into it, really, and, yeah, feel the fear and do it anyway, I think. I think I have got to a place where failure feels punk. Like, I'm not here to be liked. I'm here to provoke. And so that position allows me to fail openly. And as artists, we can't hide away from it. We should own our rubbishness when we fall flat on our face. And when I'm teaching young artists, I say, go out and fail and publicly and really badly and really learn from it, because it's only then that you can understand how to succeed. Because if you've never failed, you don't know what it is that you're trying to get away from. Perhaps early on in artists' learning, they're trying all the time to succeed. They're trying to make it right. They don't want to dare start until they've worked everything out, or if they're making in that very physical way rather than, say, digitally, they are inclined to map everything very carefully out on the page or on the paper, or worse, in their minds, and not even start until they know how it's going to be. And I think you do have to have a plan, uh, but you need to be willing to chuck the plan in the bin. Lots of paper, lots of writing all over it. So I read the whole thing and then I made a list. This is just how I do it, really. The Italian poet Dante wrote, In the middle of our life's journey, I found myself astray in a dark wood. Usually about three-quarters of the way through writing a book, I have a little crisis of confidence and I start to think, why am I writing this? It's boring, it doesn't work, nobody's gonna read it, nobody's gonna like it. And uh, luckily, my husband has gotten used to me doing this, and I complain to him and he says, oh yes, you're at that point. And the one thing about experience is that it once you've been through something a few times, you start to recognize it and think, oh yeah, this is actually part of the process. So right now, I'm writing a book that's set at Winchester Cathedral in the 1930s, and I've finished the first draft, and I'm just pulling it apart for the second draft. For me, going from the first draft to the second draft is by far the hardest thing I do. I read what I've written and always feel that it doesn't work, that it's failed. How am I going to fix this? So I kind of pull it apart in a pretty radical way, usually. And it's really terrifying. Luckily, so far, I've pulled apart books and they haven't fallen apart. But I'm a little bit terrified that I'm doomed to failure this time. So I'm, I just have to trust. I think back to all the other times I went through this process and try to sail through it and just keep going don't worry about it. Just know that every change you make to this manuscript is going to make the book better. 
to fail, to be misunderstood. I guess failure to me is when you haven't quite managed to execute an idea, when you haven't quite managed to translate your metaphor or find a way of saying the thing or articulating the thing that you want to say, everyone ends up going, you what? It's about that fear of not being able to do that, yeah, not being able to connect, not being able to share this thing, not to be able to make something that a viewer won't be able to talk to and talk with. So I start with this wanting to paint something that's very beautiful, very sublime. But actually what I really want to do is say to a visitor, hello, let's have a conversation. And so the colour and often the pattern are there for that. The Dutch painter Vincent van Gogh said, what would life be if we had no courage to attempt anything? I do quote this, that failure is one of my greatest fears, but I never finish it in that quote, because actually failure is my greatest gift. My father was the pioneer of teaching me what failure is <laughs> and reminding me of what failure is. So, you know, I grew up in a community, Bangladeshi community, who immigrated to London straight after the civil war, the war between Pakistan and Bangladesh, straight after that my parents came to London and I was born. So they were driven to better themselves, but more better their children through academics. And I wasn't really one for academics or education. So I was already a failure. And as a dancer, if I'm being absolutely honest looking back, I think I would not consider myself as the ideal dancer or the one who has the ideal talent or the ideal body for dance. But there was one day where I thought, I'm tired of being a failure. How do I use my failure to be my strength? That's unique to me. So make the uniqueness you. So I started to play on my failures. And so the fact that I'm not flexible, for example, became my strength because somehow I could move faster and I found a way to create an illusion of flexibility without having to be flexible. The fact that I couldn't slow down or do adage, things in slow motion, then became my strength because then I would accelerate even faster. I would strive to do the exact opposite of what I couldn't do. So in 2014, I made a piece of work called The West of Scotty in which I got a psychotherapist to interview 10 people about reasons why they hated me and things that I'd done to them. And I guess that, for me, is exploring my failure as a person, my failures with other humans. And in that process, I realised how we mitigate failure all the time. And I think we need to get rid of that. Like, something that I always try to do in my work is that I always try to go beyond the truth and go into the painful truth. And the more that we can get to that place, the more that we can live in those failures, I think the more honest we can be with each other and the more empathetic we can be with each other to understand we've all done this stuff. We have all totally messed up and it's really all right. So my retrospective this year 
that's going to be performed at the Roundhouse, I'm not performing it. I'm getting audience members and punters to perform it. And it will be a shambles. It will be awful. Because these are just people getting up there and giving a go. But isn't that way more exciting than seeing me come on centre stage and be like, here's my body of work for ten years? I'd much prefer to see the jeans, the Tinas, the LJs get up there and go, I think it sort of went like this. I think we learn way more about the person performing it and what the work actually means through a stranger going, I saw this in a nightclub in 2008 and here's my memory of it. We learn way more from that failure than me coming and saying, aren't I brilliant? Because I'm still brilliant, even if I fail. (laughs) The audacity. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do rate, review and subscribe. You can tune in next week when we'll explore the art of belonging. Hear John Hegley and Anahita Resvani discuss what art and belonging means for them. As well as giving pleasure to the viewer, it can be a very important thing, the making of art for mental health, for well-being... I really think it's part of, like, trying to still be part of the country, whatever I left 15 years ago, and still belong to it and still be part of it. My paintings keeps me grounded, I feel. The Art of Failure was produced by Sarah Cudden and Alia Kassam. It was a Falling Tree production for Tate with music from Camilo Tirado and the Cabinet of Living Cinema. The reader was me, Talisa Teixeira, with special thanks to all our contributors. To find out more about Tate Podcasts, visit tate.org.uk forward slash podcasts or subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Acast. <laughs>